Welcome to the latest edition of the Political Books podcast with me, Ian Dale, in association with politicos.co.uk. Uh, we're going to talk to an author who's written a book about the election campaign. Uh, we've talked to Tim Ross, who wrote a book predominantly about the Tories, but also mentioned Labour. Um, but this week, it's Ian Watson's turn. He's written a book called Five Million Conversations. Ian, welcome. Welcome. I always thought it was four million conversations, but it seems to have got, gone up since the election. It had, actually. Yeah, in January, uh, Ed Miliband said he had a target for uh, four million conversations. And I tried to find out how that target had been arrived at, so I was told that effectively his deputy chief of staff had gone into the office and said, uh, how many did we have last time? Two million! Double it! <laughs> so, um, as, as one person said, it, it was of no strategic value whatsoever. Nonetheless, once the target was set, they had to exceed it. So, basically, it's called... Five million conversations because on the eve of poll, in a marginal seat which he didn't win, Ed Miliband announced we've had five million conversations and this election will go to the wire. So the, the spoiler alert for those who haven't read the book is <laughs> it did not go to the wire. Uh, the share of the vote went up slightly, as you know, but the number of seats went down. So it's it partly trying to find out four or five million conversations. What the hell were people actually saying to them? Now, I don't know if you've read um, Tim Ross's book and the section where he writes about these uh, the Tory view of these five million conversations. And um, the Tories were very sceptical that these conversations ever took place. What, what's the truth? No, I think the truth is that they did take place, actually. Um, but they weren't necessarily of huge value. So, for example, one shadow cabinet minister said to me, it was um, certainly conversations, but it was like the conversation you'd have through a glass partition in a bank or perhaps in a social security <laughs> office. But you're, you're trying to sort of, you know, put your arguments forward and there's a bit of a barrier with the public. Basically, um, they put a lot of store on the ground war as they saw it. A lot of the Conservative uh, ground war went under the radar. Yeah. Some of it's now surfacing, of course, in the, the form of the, uh, uh, the road trip. Um, nonetheless, a lot of it happened under the radar from the Conservative side. Labour were out talking about this the whole time. The party's general secretary said, I don't know why we're talking about this so much, because this is a process story. It's not just about the arguments we're putting mm. forward. But effectively, it was posited on pulling out the Labour vote, getting uh, as many people at least to vote as, as did in 2010. The trouble was, when those votes weren't there, there was no plan B. So when people were saying, oh, I don't know, I'm not sure, they were registering a high number of don't knows. They had no plan really to try and convince them. They weren't sure where these don't knows were going. They made, as it turns out, to be hugely inaccurate assumptions that someone probably go to the Dems again. Uh, no, um, by large, in, in many uh, small towns outside uh, London and England, they're, they're going to the Conservatives. Um, but also, um, they, they had no idea of how to feed in the information they got into the centre. So some local campaigns run incredibly well, including Stella Creasy's actually, which mm. uh, she's now under some pressure from people on the left of her party, but uh, she, uh, she was very good, Peter Kyle and Hove, but there's no way of actually making this into some kind of national picture which allowed them to divert the resources to where they were in trouble, or to actually try and find the arguments that got people uh, perhaps to think think twice about Labour. Some people effectively just abandoned the national message and went for a, a strong local message and that seemed to be quite successful. But the national message and the strategy was incredibly rigid, incredibly inflexible. And was that, in the end, down to Ed Miliband? It was partly down to Ed Miliband. Because he had a reputation of not being able to make a decision. Yes. Um, well, I think one, one of his... Uh, <laughs> I quote a lot of his closest staff here. These are not, uh, as it were, conventionally critics in the Labour Party. One of the closest members of staff said he was stubborn in his indecision. And I think that was the problem. So partly uh, he would be very determined to take longer to decide something than perhaps they would like. But then once he made a decision, he was very inflexible when it came to changing it. Mm. And if he felt he was right, again, the person he appointed actually to run 
um, the campaign from his head office uh, said that in effect he was his own strategist. He didn't really want strategic advice. He wanted people to run an organisation, but in terms of strategy, he felt uh, he was on the money and as it transpired, he wasn't. Why do you think he didn't cut through with the electorate personally? Because when you meet Ed Miliband, he's actually a much more imposing character than he's ever come across in the media. Um, he kind of looks different when you meet him to how he comes across on television. And I always thought it was a bit like John Major, and I always thought if John Major could have met the whole electorate, he would have won 97 by a landslide, but obviously you can't do that as a party leader. And I think Ed Miliband had that problem. Yeah, he did. Uh, and I think this is the astonishing thing. It's, it's quite a, a strange dilemma, but I think partly in his own head I was told that he was very, very... Perhaps, perhaps we all are, actually. People <laughs> see me in television and criticise it. You know, you like to think you take it your stride, and perhaps perhaps you don't. <coughs> a little bit, oh, God, you know. And I think from, from his point of view... Um, the image he had of himself was a little bit higher than perhaps uh, people had in the, in the in the media, and he couldn't quite come to terms with that. And it is difficult because you know, having followed him around the country, as you say, he's, he looks much taller for a start than he yeah. does on television. He's much more assured. He uh, takes control quite often in conversations. He's uh, he's you know, he can be self-deprecating, but you know it's self-deprecation it doesn't necessarily mean it. Um, he can be humorous, uh, engaging, and yet somehow through the lens he turns into this as he. Put mm. himself this kind of Wallace and Gromit character, um, and I think he didn't quite come to terms with it. So they the tried to get him to say, you know, you, you remember the speech where he effectively said, you know, if you want charisma and all the rest of the photo ops, that's the other guy. That took about six months to convince him to do that speech in the first place, and then lots of people have used the same phrase to me time and again. And it could be about policy, it could be about personality, but they said what he tended to do was tick a box and move on. So he felt he'd, he'd addressed this kind of. Um, Deficit uh, between him and, and, and David Cameron in terms of who looked prime ministerial. It was time to move on to something else, but it was it was a mystery, and I think they, they tried to get him out meeting as many people as possible. Um, and in the, the marginal seat of Stevenage, for example, uh, he'd done a, a public meeting, um, and lots of people, oh my goodness, you know, he's not not as good as his brother. It came along and he, he wowed them. But what they tended to do during the general election was um, have, and this, the, partly this is what the book's about as well, it's looking at how parties try to control the message and the messenger, but they tried to make sure he was insulated from the wider public, just in yeah. case he looked anything less than prime ministerial. So quite often um, uh, they would even try to prevent cameras getting arrival shots as we went in. And I think one of the most spectacular things that stuck in my mind uh, was an attempt I mean, what they were doing throughout the election was trying to do create the political weather by having these little mini manifesto launches, tiny little policy on health, and then the reminders of their bigger policies. They tried to do the same on the ethnic minority launch, and they initially banned us from getting in. And I said, "Well, why are you trying to stop us here? This this might even look frankly frankly racist if that's the only one we're not allowed into." Um, and as they told me quite honestly after the event, my goodness, he might have been seen eating their words, not mine, weird food or somebody might have put a garland on him. And in that sense, by trying to protect him, they made him look very inauthentic yeah. as well. And I think if you'd seen the authentic Ed Miliband, you might be a little bit more impressed than the image you got in the media. I, I mean, I saw a bit of this, in that we were trying to get Ed Miliband to do a regular phone-in on LBC. And I spent 18 months trying to persuade Bob Roberts, the, the, his press advisor, that this would be a good thing. But I knew I had to get round Tom Baldwin as well. And Tom Baldwin and I, should we say, have a bit of history. Um, and I finally managed it, and he agreed to do uh, one with me, three quarters of an hour. Um, we said, we'll do it wherever you like. If you're going to do a sort of speech in the marginal seat, we'll come and do it, do an outside broadcast. 
So we ended up on a Friday afternoon in Hastings of all places. And he did one of these sort of um, in the round type meetings, it was very good. Came and did the phone in, um, and he was brilliant at it. Absol I mean, much better than any of the other people that we'd ever had do it. Um, so, and they, they all seemed pleased with it, even though um, that they couldn't actually hear it because there weren't enough headphones for the <laughs> to listen in on it at the time. Um, and he was not, he showed humour, he was warm, and I was absolutely deluged with emails, texts, and tweets and people saying, God, I saw him in a different light. So I sent them a whole load of these after and said, that's exactly what you presumably would have wanted to achieve by this. Let's put the date in the diary for the next one. Did we ever do that? No. Now, I still don't know why, whether, because he seemed to be up, whenever I saw it, oh, we must do another one, whether it was him just saying that or whether it was, I don't know what happened. And we, the only one, next one we did was in the middle of the election campaign, which again, he was brilliant at, but it was too late. Yeah. And, and what he was, I mean, my argument was, well, you're actually talking to the people that you need to get to vote for. You're talking over the heads of the media, in a sense, you're talking directly to people. And they feel that they're talking directly to you. Um, but for whatever reason, they just wouldn't do any more. That, that is quite incredible, actually, isn't it? Because part, part of the thing they, they put more store on, actually, was, as they called it, well, they're quite wrong. Uh, unmediated access. Yeah. So they're preparing for the TV debates, for example, which of course never quite worked out the way they mm. they had hoped. Uh, for six months before the election, I think he was going through going through his paces time and again. Uh, but again, you know, um, it isn't quite the same in the round as it, as he did with you. So to some extent, it was almost in some ways over rehearsed. I think mm. in some areas he looked quite um, again quite wooden. In other areas, he got caught out. Um, I think most spectacularly, actually, was in the final. Yeah. Question time of the the election, which I think um, I call the book his his kind of Julian Duffy moment, because so much had gone in to try mm. to prevent him from being accosted by a random member of the public, mm. as it happened to Gordon Brown denouncing him on you know immigration and all the yeah. rest of it, or don't you look a bit funny? Um, but actually, he got found out there when he effectively told the truth and said he didn't think that Labour had overspent not once but twice, and they rehearsed the answer he should have given. Um, which we, which we include in the book, of course. Uh, it wasn't necessarily the most truthful answer, but it was it was tested in focus groups, and it's a much better answer uh, than he gave. The most toxic answer in his own focus groups mm. were the two that he gave, and then yeah. of course, as you know, he stumbled off stage. Yeah. So that was which kind of symbolised that whole it, evening. It, didn't it, it? it did, didn't it? You know, and that was right at the end. And some people said, look, people may have forgotten that he forgot to mention the deficit in his conference speech, but if they clawing doubts about him, that yeah. reinforced those doubts just a week before polling day and I think you know partly again had he actually mixed it better with the uh, the audience been more used to those kind of uh, events it, it it would have helped him actually but there he was very defensive when they had um, what was clearly a very hostile audience but they were, they were hostile to other politicians as well I know they complained about the makeup of that audience but nonetheless of of the three candidates he handled it yeah. by far the worst. Where do you think Ed Miliband goes from here? I mean it, it must have been the most earth-shattering blow to him and on Outwardly, when you, I mean, I, I met him at an awards thing the other night, and I'm, I mean, I can't believe I did this, but I found myself to say, have a hug. On a personal level, I've always gotten really well with that, and I sort of was one of the first to predict that he would be Labour leader, because I thought he had more than his brother did. I thought he, he sort of ticked more boxes than David Miliband did. Maybe not tick them quite as some of them quite as well, but he and it just didn't work for whatever reason. And I mean I, I just just don't know where he goes in politics now. 
No, I mean, um, I, I sang that song during the 2010 election, actually, and I remember the performance I gave in a, a community centre in Walthamstow, but he sort of rolled his sleeves up, he looked mm. actually, you know, in the end, actually, there was that uh, quite controversial, wasn't there, um, campaign that said, you know, Ed speaks to human unlike his, unlike his brother. But actually, he did actually seem to be quite engaging, but it also seemed to be full of energy in terms yeah. of back of being climate change secretary. But he is actually a brilliant and, speaker. And he is a brilliant speaker, but, yeah. But again he was sort of but, hamstrung by yeah. all the advisors. I think they kind of like, you know, Kinect ninety two all yeah. over again actually, didn't it? And yeah. sort of, you know, I think actually the, the revived um absence of war actually <laughs> run up to the uh, election, but it could have been about could have been about Ed Miliband yeah. as well actually. I mean, I saw him after the election as uh, as well. Um, he's uh, off doing a fundraiser for a, uh, a, a one of his colleagues in the marginal seats, um, and he seemed to be outwardly quite pleasant. But several things he hadn't quite gotten. I, th- I think he, he still, you know, he hadn't come to terms with the fact that some of the messages that he put forward were wrong. I think he took some uh, comfort, if I'm blunt about it, from the fact that uh, so many of the the obvious leadership rivals had actually had failed because they were trying to mm. quickly junk his agenda and he saw that even Andy Burnham moved to the right to go into the pro-business agenda very quickly. Um, he was, I think, surprised that quite as many people in the Labour Party were being quite as nasty about him as, uh, as he thought. Um, the attempted coup against him the previous November was much more serious than he seemed to have come to terms with. Um, what he said he'd, he'd do in the future is uh, continue to speak on the issues that, that matter to him and that includes the environment and climate change has come out slowly on on the media in doing so, um, but I, I should let you just secret actually. But one of my colleagues was asking him after an interview with him on the cloud, he said, Well, of course, you're climate change secretary. Is there any other job in the cabinet you'd have liked? I'd really rather like to have been prime minister. <laughs> 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 Perhaps at that point, he felt like giving him a hug as well as you, actually. <laughs> Um, so I have a word about what's going on in the Labour Party now. Um, again, n- no one could have predicted what would happen after the election, um, particularly regarding Jeremy Corbyn. Um, where do you think this is going to end up? Because it seems to me, I, I never thought the Labour Party would split, but I'm sort of starting to think that that's a possibility now, which I didn't think a couple of months ago. I think that the message from the senior people in the Labour Party is, you know, uh, <laughs> keep calm and carry on <laughs> effectively but you know don't talk about SDP type splits um, you know there's, there's 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 a long way to go let's see what happens um, you know I wouldn't rule it out I mean it, it doesn't look from where we're standing at the moment and you know um, even with yeah, having to be duly impartial it doesn't look necessarily like it went well I mean the interesting thing is that the um, the vote hasn't actually collapsed it's actually just eroded a little bit mm. Uh, Labour were able to win Oldham with an increased share of the vote. Um, given that that's the case, it becomes very difficult to try and topple Jeremy Corbyn, who does relatively well in the uh, in, in next May's elections. So, for example, you know, Scotland, in most people's minds, are already written off, so that doesn't necessarily deliver a killer blow. Uh, I'm not sure how London Mills will go, but if it's mm. 50-50, if Stukan wins, that, that then bolsters Jeremy Corbyn's position. But what you, you might find is that the, you know, the Labour share of the vote in the polls continues to just go down and down, not mm. spectacularly enough to to, uh, uh, to bring about a coup, but enough to make sure that the 2020 election is beyond them. Labour has a slightly higher core vote than the Tories do, I mean not by many percentage points, but I can't imagine Labour going below 25%, um, which I can imagine the Tories going below 25% either I suppose, but um, there will always be that, that core there. and. 
in your experience, the new people that come into the Labour Party, is it a, a mixture of sort of new, young, sort of idealistic types and sort of people who basically left when left the Labour Party when Blair became leader? It's sort of a mixture of those, is it? Uh, it's it, it's a mixture, and it varies from area to area. Talking to uh, MPs, and, you know, one MP I spoke to. There's virtually no young people at all that <laughs> actually rejoin the Labour Party. Mm. Entirely, it's the old Iraq generation, yeah. people he's very, very familiar with, and they tend to come from um, uh, the left of the party, they were disillusioned by Blair. Also, quite a lot of people actually left uh, the Labour Party from the um, from the other side, if you like, under Ed Miliband, far more than I assumed, actually. About a third of the membership had disappeared between really? 2010 and 2015. Wow. Um, and they are most certainly not coming back. You know, yeah. <laughs> in fact, some of them are resigning by by the minute. Um, uh, Dan Hodge has been most most recent, but the um, for the second time for the second time. That's right. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, some of them are just basically are, are, are recycled. Some of them are, um, which is really interesting. I think I'm being told they're not desperately active. So it's still the the old stalwarts are actually going out doing the canvas and talking mm-hmm. to voters. But of course, they do have the absolute right for their uh, three pounds or to join as full members to vote in any subsequent leadership election. So they might be relatively dormant, but if Jeremy Corbyn is challenged, for example, they'll probably come back and vote for him all over again. Uh, in other areas, it is actually it is actually younger people who are getting involved. I think you know one of the more interesting things, and that's certainly the case in London. So some of the MPs who feel most at risk from deselection are not, if you like, the worst MPs. They're not the most indolent, not even the most right wing. Mm. <laughs> they're, the, they're the ones where groups like Momentum are very yeah. active and have brought new people in and it was interesting during the course of the leadership election to see you know, Stop the War having a, a link on their website to the £3 um, supporters uh, uh, the website also Socialist Action doing exactly the same thing, the other leadership candidates, Yvette Cooper, Liz Kendall, Andy Burnham no link to get people to sign up, they were mm. trying to sort of, you know, effectively appeal to the existing membership rather than to yeah. grow that membership and some of that membership has grown and it's brought in people who were to the left of Labour before. They tend to be younger people, the people who left Labour but still see themselves as, as, as Labour broadly. In other areas, especially outside London, seem to be rejoining and it's quite unpredictable how active they're going to be. Or even if you know, the core loyalty was to the Labour Party but they didn't like Blair very much, whether they actually see if its electoral prospects look to be um, you know, severely limited in 2020, whether they wouldn't consider voting for someone else mm. other than Jeremy Corbyn if there's a challenge. Who are the rise? I mean, you're in Parliament every day. Who do you think are the rising stars in the Parliamentary Labour Party? Uh, I think that I think there are a range of them actually. I think that the most obvious choice, the kind of um, you know, the leader that never was so far in the current generation, used to be Alan Johnson, of course. It's now uh, Dan Jarvis, and lots of people are saying, look, people unite around him. Some people are saying, well, you know, I said to me, does he have the kind of intellectual confidence to be leader? He almost knows his own limitations too too well. Um, but uh, there are people who would like to try and see if they could unite around him as a future Labour leader. Um, He's a very difficult person to interview. I, I did a, we were doing the um, on the Syrian war debate the yeah. other day. We were on College Green, and he came over and I talked to him for about five minutes. And actually, he was very, very impressive, but he never once looked at me. You know how when you're interviewing yes. someone, you kind of need to have eye contact yeah. uh, to sort of butt in or to ask another question incredibly difficult to interrupt you. <laughs> That's my memory from that interview. <laughs> just decided to top you out. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Which if you're doing it down yeah. the line you can just interrupt whenever of you like. Course. But it's sort of slightly there's that different dynamic. Little, yeah. 
there's a lack of confidence though to some extent for him actually worrying about where the next question is coming from his problem I think is that it's a bit like Jeremy Hunt is not of the Conservative Party I think he joined the party two years before he became a candidate and Dan Jarvis is the same they're not steeped in the history of the party and I think that's a particularly the Labour Party I think may be a disadvantage for him um, but because I was I thought he would run and then when he didn't I thought mm, that's maybe you're never going to get another chance that's a bit like Chuka Ramuna yeah I mean he was always concerned I was going to say the great white hair that's yeah. not <laughs> the correct expression but I mean, I wonder his time has possibly been and gone. I think it has actually. He he was a future once. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so um, someone once said. Yeah, <laughs> but he, um, yeah, I mean, I, I certainly interviewed him during the uh, uh, leadership campaign, and it was quite interesting actually. He he also kind of bizarrely lacked a bit of confidence. Um, Lee McCartney in Swindon, which obviously we have the Conservatives launched the manifesto, and he wanted to do a pool clip with just one broadcaster. Um, so there was a. ITV's living, you know, he said, you're not bloody royalty, you know. <laughs> and in the end, he kind of conceded, but he was actually incredibly nervous, and a few days later, yeah. he was out of the game. So I really don't see him coming back, and I think that he's also one of the areas where a lot of people close to Corbyn are actually organising, um, yeah. and, they're, you know, they're not keen. In a sense, actually, he knows that, so he's been quite outspoken the whole range yeah. of issues, including the war, but I don't think he is likely to come back. Every Everyone thinks <laughs> that... Sort of uh, the year after an election is a bit boring from a political point of view, but it's proved anything but. And now, of course, we've got the European referendum to, I say, look forward to. Um, we don't know what it is. We don't know what the circumstances will be. But I mean, uh, if you think I'm wrong in thinking that politics is actually more exciting now than it has been for years, oh, it is. Uh, I mean, it always is. I think if, if 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 one party is actually fighting itself as as it was in the you know in in, in the 1980s and 90s, and certainly our referendums are pretty uh, pretty exciting, quite bloody. Uh, but it is it is exciting because people are not quite sure how things are going to work out. Mm. You, know, you can't say with total confidence that there'll be a yes vote in mm. the uh, in, in in the forthcoming referendum. So you could actually see the two major parties rip themselves apart. Actually, not over Europe in in, in Labour's case, they've got uh, got plenty of um, uh, you know plenty of problems already. Um, but you know, in the Conservatives' case, if, if people come back with uh, you know from Brussels, not not, not in the next few days, but in in, uh, in February with limited aims which they failed to meet mm. um, then really some quite big beasts are going to be speaking out against their own leader you're going to think this is a really odd question but do you not think that in two years time the liberal democrats might well be due for a bit of a resurgence because if, if labor and the conservatives are pulling themselves apart ukip inevitably i would have thought is after the referendum whichever way it goes maybe considered a bit of a busted flush. I think it's a huge opportunity for Liberal Democrats. Not now. I mean, people just, I mean, I, it, it's quite difficult. You never hear Liberal Democrats on the media because you and the BBC, sort of the LBC as well, I mean, think, well, they're a bit irrelevant at the moment. But I think that's going to change. I'm a lone voice on this. I You're know. still a lone voice on this. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, politically they're not in a bad place to, actually, to, to attract some people who are, uh, you know, uh, pro-European conservative. Some people myth with uh, Corbyn in the in the Labour Party, but I think the brand is just so damaged, um, and the current leadership isn't seen as desperately inspiring, except to those who've managed to stay in the mm. Liberal Democrats and stay stay true and faithful to it. And even there, actually, uh, Farin got a lot of, lot of criticism over the way he voted on uh, on Syria. Yeah. Um, you know whether there's another project there. Uh, you know the thing that really gave them rocket boosters, as you know, was the, the alliance, the SDP joining in. You know whether there's some kind of progressive Democrats or something set mm. up that actually wants to 
hold the centre ground along with elements of Liberal Democrats. If that's how it goes, then that's um, uh, that would be a very interesting development. I think we're uh, very much in the foothills of that, and the ascent may never <laughs> may never take place. I'd, I'd, go, I'd go along with that. Uh, but but you know, um, but I think certainly if they go consistently make the arguments, then perhaps we'll start listening a bit more. But at the moment, they're so irrelevant. In fact, you know, the third party in, in Westminster is the SNP, and we mm. naturally enough have to give them formal yeah. coverage. Ian, thank you very much indeed. You can uh, buy Ian's book. It's called Five Million Conversations. It's published by the Luath Press at, what's the price? 12 dollars 12 Bargain, I would say. And you can probably get it a lot cheaper if you really want to. You can. Ian, thanks a lot. <laughs>